I went back to my room and, uh, I, you know, still had weapons, you know, and pulled my pistol out and put it in my mouth and was getting ready to blow my head off. And, um, you know, thankfully, uh, I had a picture of my wife and kids on the desk, uh, across from me. And, uh, I saw that as I was sitting there with my freaking gun in my mouth and thought, what are you doing? If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. This is a special episode. We're releasing it the week of 9-11 and specifically on September 13th, which is the anniversary of the day my guest calls his rebirth. Why? Because on September 13th, 2007, former Navy SEAL Jay Redman almost lost his life in a close quarters firefight in Afghanistan. I'll keep this intro brief because Jay gives us the whole story much better than I could. Before we get going, I want to mention a few things. First, I was introduced to Jay by friend and former guest Bedros Koulian. Upon texting with Jay, I mentioned that I had a very close college friend and childhood friend that served as SEALs. Turns out the college friend, now a trauma surgeon, operated on Jay after the horrific firefight I just mentioned. And the childhood friend, believe it or not, was in Jay's platoon when he made the mistake that led to him almost losing his trident. You'll hear about that later. So you can imagine how surreal this was to hear him tell me a story and refer to Josh when Josh is a guy I used to play manhunt with, ride bikes with, go skiing with, vacation with his family. It brought this all very close to home for me. Now, second, a friend recently told me he's not as inspired by stories of heroes like Jay Redman because he feels like he can't relate to the greatness of a Navy SEAL. I beg to differ. As you listen to Jay, his humility is apparent. And his honesty in admitting, as he says at one point, the biggest thing is we are human. We are not superheroes, even though we're painted in that light. And that's why I'm so humbled to bring you this conversation. Yes, he's a true American hero. Yes, he's tougher than most of us. But what he does beautifully and why he fits the format of this podcast so well is that he takes his seemingly superhuman story and breaks it down in a way the rest of us can learn from, relate to, and walk away with a deeper perspective on our own challenges. Do me a favor. Either pause now or take the time when you're done listening and go thank a man or woman you know or can seek out for their service. Our soldiers put their lives on the line every day so guys like me can pontificate freely from a microphone and people like you can listen in relative safety. Here he is, Jason Redman. We were a military family, although I was not, my dad was not active duty when I was young. He, he was out of the military at that point, but... 
he was incredibly patriotic and, you know, obviously that was a big part of his identity and who he was. So I remember growing up and, you know, my dad had old military gear that I would play with and then stories of my, my grandfathers who both served in World War II and my, my great uncle who had been um, killed in World War II. So uh, always from a young age, I wanted to serve in some capacity. Um, I think, you know, when I was really young, I think I proclaimed to my parents at three, I was going to be a fireman. And uh, slowly or pretty quickly uh, from a young age, I said, yeah, I'm going to be in the military. And and it, it, it evolved. I mean, in my probably earlier, you know, eight through 12, I was like, I'm going to be a pilot. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. My grandfather had been a pilot. And then, you know, this was in the uh, early to mid eighties and GI Joe was really big back then. You know, I was a kid that liked to play with that stuff and just fascinated with, uh, the gut, the snake eyes and these guys who were these commandos and, uh, started reading a lot more on guys like that and <clears throat> kind of said, that's what I wanted to do. So fascinated with the Rangers and the green berets. And when I was about 14, my dad told me about the seal teams and um, he, as a army um, paratrooper, all the way up until really the late 90s, SEALs went through Army Airborne School. And uh, so way back when my dad was in the Army, there were SEALs that came through Airborne School with him. And he, you know, super impressed by these incredibly fit, you know, crazy guys is what he described them as. And he just told me, he said, hey, if you want to push yourself and be the best, <clears throat> these guys are the best and they're the hardest. <clears throat> you know, they jump, they do stuff out of the water. And at this point in my life, my parents had divorced and I moved back and forth uh, between the two of them. And my mom had uh, lived in the Virgin Islands for a period of time. So I was, you know, big into the water and I, you know, did a lot of bodyboarding and dabbled a little bit in surfing and just loved the water. Yeah. And my dad saw those things and said, Hey, you should look into this. Were you playing sports at that point? I was not up? yet at 14, a, a little bit. I mean, I played a little bit of sports in middle school. I dabbled. I played baseball for one year. I didn't really like it. I played basketball at one point and, you know, vertic severely vertically challenged, you know, <laughs> even now uh, still a little bit, you know, five, eight, uh, no height in this family, but, uh, didn't really go down those roads, but it wasn't until I made the decision. Yeah. That's what I want to do when I was 14. I mean, I looked in to it. Nobody re could really tell me much about it back then. You really, there was not, you know, in this day and age of the internet, you know, kids yeah. out there, you know, you guys, I feel like an old man sitting here going, you know, you young whippersnappers, <laughs> but uh, there really was no information. Um, you know, I really struggled to find information about who the SEALs were. I mean, the biggest thing I would find is, you know, a common theme of Toughest military training in the U.S. military, hardest training in the U.S. military, hardest guys in the military. And then oftentimes I would see toughest training in the world. And I don't know why there was a fire in me. Um, you know, I didn't have this hard childhood where my parents beat me and put a chip on my shoulder. I mean, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. We were relatively poor. Um, you know, I oftentimes... We, I remember getting hand-me-downs from members of our church and, but, you know, things were good, but something in me, there was just this drive, this fire that I always had that if you told me I couldn't do something, 
it drove me to want to do it, to, to prove you wrong. I just, I don't know. I had this inner chip that anytime somebody said that to me, if you told me no, I was like, I will prove you wrong. You have siblings? I, I do. I have a, a, a brother and two sisters. So younger you? brother, and much younger. He's seven years younger than me. And yeah. then uh, two sisters and they're very spread out also. So my little sister, I call her, even though she's uh, uh, older than me, we're Irish twins. We're only uh, 10 months apart uh, and um, or 11 months apart. Yeah. But um, we're super close. And then my older sister is actually 10 years older than me. Oh, so, wow. so we're really spread, spread out. out. Yeah. And so when you, when you were 17, you enlisted. So had you graduated? I, I was school? still in high school. Or you're still in high school. I was. So, and, and, <clears throat> you know, just kind of an interesting road. Uh, the, the military and the SEAL teams really kept me in line. I will tell you, um, because, um, I was kind of going down this road where, spreading my wings like many of us as teenagers. And I wasn't, a, I wasn't a bad kid, but I was hanging out with probably a bad crowd. Uh, guys that were getting into drugs, guys that were doing some uh, illegal things. But what kept me out of trouble was I knew that if I got in serious trouble and I knew if I did drugs, I couldn't join the Navy. So I kind of flirted on the edge of this world, but I never you know, really got into it. Uh, but my parents didn't, my dad didn't really like it. And, you know, finally we butted heads and I got kicked out at, uh, 17 and, uh, and my dad thankfully was, you know, like, I think the military definitely will be the best thing for you. And that's what you always wanted to do. So he signed for me to join the Navy, um, when I was 17, still in high school. And what's amazing is the day I signed up was September 11th, 1992. Uh, so what an incredible day, um, you know, a very fortuitous day to think about, you know, nine years later, what would yeah. happen on that day. So, um, so yeah, joined the military, finished high school. And as soon as I was done, uh, in the summer of 93, I, uh, headed off to boot camp, 18 years old boot camp and you were, and then how long was it before? Was it like three years before you went through buds? And like, what was that process of? Uh, it was, uh, it was a little less. It was about a year and a half. I started SEAL training in January of 1995. Um, and I would have started earlier, uh, but I wrecked my motorcycle. Uh, I was in Virginia beach. I got sent to the headquarters command and I was just working there as a, the SEAL headquarters command. And I was waiting for my orders to go to SEAL training. It was a little bit backed up at the time. So I had about a year to wait and I worked at the SEAL headquarters and literally, I think it was only, I think in August of 94, I was supposed to head to SEAL training and I wrecked my motorcycle in Virginia beach and broke uh, my shoulder. And uh, so that delayed me and healed up and I classed up in January 95. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. You and I are recording this here in San Diego because I'm, you know, and across the water, I can see the Coronado bridge and where, um, you know, right where I went through SEAL training, yeah. you know, so many years ago. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because my buddy that I told you about, he also wanted to be a fire pilot before he wanted to be a SEAL. And then we were, our families were together a couple of years ago um, at a Hotel Dell uh, yeah. in Coronado. And we were out in the water with the kids 
And he goes, you see all those planes taking off? And he's like, I used to hate those guys. He's like, we'd be in the water freezing. He's like, I hated the fighter. If I yeah. see them go, what, there's, is there like an Air Force base? Yeah, uh, no, it's uh, Navy. North? It's North Island yeah, yeah. Uh, Naval he's like, Base. He's like, I would just curse them out from yeah. the water. And um, But it's 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 very cool to be here with you so close to it. Yeah, um, so many memories. So So Hollywood has done a lot of, depicting of, of SEALs and SEAL training. And I know because of uh, a few friends that have, have gone through, I've heard a lot of stories of buds and everything. Where, where do they get it right and where do they get it wrong? And you and I talked a little bit about it before we started recording, that this kind of stereotypical idea of, of what a Navy SEAL is and then that kind of the reality. What are the, what, what are the qualities that you see that are uh, really the defining factors it, it, as far as Hollywood's depiction, not of even, the SEAL not teams even a, but or, you in reality, what do you, what do you see it as a, a, a physical? Is it, is well, it mental? I mean, with we training, I mean, the biggest thing we are human, we are not superheroes, even though we sometimes get painted into that light. But at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing magical about guys uh, that make it through training and become SEALs. They're from all walks of life. They are, I mean, the biggest SEAL that I'm aware of was about 6'8 and 320. Uh, And, uh, you know, and we have guys that are smallest. I think the smallest I've heard of was about 5'2 and 120. Uh, Every race, every creed, every color, every religion. Uh, So we come from all walks of life. and, uh, And really the average SEAL is, you know, smaller than what, you know, Hollywood loves to depict yeah. their warrior class as, um, you know, I think I read a report somewhere that the, they did a, a demographic of the community, 510 and 180 is the average. So. Yeah. yeah. And my buddy is significantly smaller than that, actually. Yeah. The one, so, the one that I was telling you about. Yeah. But, um, so we're human and I think that's the biggest thing. We're human with, um, I guess a superhuman ability to endure discomfort and, and pain and, and negativity. Cause I mean, those are the things that they pile on you in training that you have to endure. Uh, and, and the guys who can endure that, uh, are the ones who make it through training and the guys who can't are the ones who quit. And it is definitely not physical, even though it is tremendously physical. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we would often see, I would often see guys, it was always fascinating to me that we would have guys, I remember guys would come into training that would just, you know, they'd be off the cover of muscle and fitness is what they'd look like. And I remember, you know, here I was when I started training, you know, I'm five foot eight and 135 pounds. And I'm like, oh my God, how can I make it through, you know, when this, you know, with this guy and that guy would be one of the first guys to quit. And, you know, every time I saw that happen, I was like, yeah, you know, the quickening, I'm going to take your power, son. And, uh, and it would happen all the time. Or you would see these guys who were like, yeah, captain of the football team. And I did this, I did that. I remember we had a guy who was a star triathlete, like, like world ranked triathlete. And I remember the instructors talking a lot about this guy coming through training and they were like, you know, do you think he'll make it? I don't know. And, uh, sure enough, man. And he only lasted about two weeks and he quit. 
And uh, that goes to show you it's not physical. All those guys had the ability to make it physically. As a matter of fact, the reality is if you pass the physical test to get into training, you have the ability to graduate. Yeah. Uh, It's just mental. It's mentally enduring the grind. Yeah. So some people, if they heard the stories of some of the training tactics, would say they're inhumane. Uh, I know that they're in place so that when you're in a real life situation, you can fall back on that training. Uh, feels like the perfect segue to to share with my audience a little of, uh, or as much as you want, of what went down in September 2007. Yeah, and, and so, and I love how you talk about the training and the mindset, because it's funny, what I talk to people about in life now, um, you know, oftentimes I'm asked to come in and I speak on both leadership and, and mindset. Those are the two things, specifically the overcome mindset. And, um, but what I really tell people is I am a failure and adversity expert. That's, and there are three things that enable you to overcome failure or massive adversity or crisis, whatever it is. And one is the mindset, the overcome mindset, this idea that it doesn't matter what comes along, whether I go over it, under it, around it, or directly through it, I'm going to figure out a way to get to the other side. Um, you know, even after I, even if I have to crawl with my teeth, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and I'm only moving a nano, you know, a nanometer at a time, I'm going to get there. Um, the second thing is preparation and training. Um, and, and it, and, these things apply in SEAL training, but they apply in everyday life too. I don't care who you are. And then the third thing is balance. You know, if you're living your life way out of control and you're only focused on one area and something bad happens, you are not going to be prepared. You're going to be weak in the other areas, which is where you're going to crumble. Um, So coming full circle, because I talk often a lot about something I call life ambushes. So on September 13th, 2007, I saw, I, I sustained grievous injuries from an enemy ambush. Uh, and here I was, I trained my entire adult life on how to take the fight to the enemy. And at this point in my life, I'd now had been through, you know, I don't know, 60 real world combat missions. I had done probably at least 50 real world combat uh, entries. I'd been in multiple firefights. I had taken the fight to the enemy. We had killed the enemy. Um, and on September 13th, I found myself on the receiving end of what we'd been sent, what we'd been sending all these years. And it made me take a step back and really look at, um, the mechanics of an ambush and the mechanics of an attack and really how people process things. Um, because really what saved us that night really was those three things our our overcome mindset, this idea that we were going to win and get out of this fight. Preparation and training was a huge thing and enabled it. And, and, and three was that balance. We were balanced as a team. I was out of the fight right off the bat when I got shot and knocked unconscious, uh, in the face and my team leader took over. So that balance structure and in our training enabled us to overcome. But when I, and I'll come back and get a little more in depth on that firefight. But what I looked at was now fast forward many years later, and actually my new book overcome is totally built around this idea that an ambush is designed to channelize someone into a specific location and, and a choke point is 
kind of what we call it or a channelized area where we make it difficult for them to get out of that area. And then that is the point of the attack where they're at. And then we rain as much firepower and devastation upon them to kill them or kill their will to fight. And, and, uh, and you will see it. You will see individuals that in an ambush, they just shut down because it's so devastating. It's so overwhelming the way it's set up. Um, and I felt that, I mean, in those first few minutes, it was, I mean, we were opened up on by at least 15 enemy fighters, two large, uh, PKM machine guns that are large belt fed weapons. And they had us in a very devastating crossfire. Um, I, my, our medic was initially hit right off the bat, took a round right below the knee that severed both bones, collapsed his weight, pretty much anchored him to the ground right in, in, in front of us off to the left. One of our other guys ran forward to grab onto him and start to drag him back. He got stitched up the right side. Uh, I got shot, uh, stitched across the body. My body armor took uh, several rounds. And then I took two rounds in the left elbow, which in the moment I thought had shot my arm off. Um, I was taking rounds off my helmet. I took rounds off my gun. Um, I, I took... Um, I had my left night vision tube shot off and, and the, the, the bullets were just cracking all around me. Um, yeah. if you've ever been, if you've ever been down range, um, on a shooting range or, you know, cause that's about the only place that I've ever heard this before, but when large caliber bullets go by you, they're traveling faster than the speed of the sound. So they actually make a sonic crack as they go by. That's actually what you're hearing. But you almost, when they're super, super, super close, like literally I had bullets flying probably within inches. Uh, and I could literally feel the, the overpressure of the air because the round is traveling so fast. It's pushing the air out of the way. So you could feel it. Uh, it, it was crazy. I can't even describe it. It felt like angry bees were cracking, you know, were cracking by me everywhere. Um, and then of course, you know, getting riddled and shot. And so it was so overwhelming in the moment. All I wanted to do was like hunker down and be like, please stop. <laughs> this sucks. Um, but obviously, you know, you couldn't do that. So training had got us ready for that moment. And I also knew, yeah, you stop, you're dead. Yeah. You are dead. You're going to get pinned down. Um, so I started shooting, uh, and our other guys started shooting. Um, I also started yelling, which, uh, I think the enemy obviously heard me yelling. It's night. It's about 4am in the morning. The enemy heard me yelling and they turned both machine guns on me at that point, which was even worse. Um, and I quickly realized, okay, this sucks. This is not a position I want to be in. I need to get out of here and find something that will stop bullets, which the only thing we had to do that because um, it was nothing but thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert behind us when we got ambushed. We had come out of some dense vegetation um, and and turned to walk in front of this vegetation when we walked into this ambush. The enemy had set up inside of it. So I tried to move, and the only place uh, we, we were fortunate enough that about 15 yards behind me to my left, there was kind of a large, like, John Deere tractor tire. And, uh, our guys had fallen back to that. My, my, one of our guys had grabbed 
our medic and dragged him back. Still, he got stitched up the right side as he did it, but still was strong enough. I mean, just a big beast of a guy managed to drag himself and our medic back behind that tire. I was still out front. I tried to lay down more fire. I was yelling at our guys when both those machine guns turned on me and I turned to try and move back at that point. And that's when I caught around uh, in the face. Um, it hit me right in front of the ear. It traveled through my face. It exited kind of the right side of my nose. So it took off almost all my nose, blew out my right cheekbone. Uh, the bullet traveled right under my eye. So it vaporized my orbital floor and blew that out. It broke all the bones above my eye. Uh, it broke the head of my jaw and then it shattered my jaw down to my chin and, uh, and knocked me out. Oh my God. So, and my guy saw this and saw me fall in front of this tire. I was probably 10 yards in front of this tire when this happened. So I thought I was dead. So, um, continued fighting. They, they continued fighting. I obviously was out of the fight (laughs) and, uh, came to, and definitely kind of started thinking about uh, okay, where am I? If you really had your bell rung, you know, it, it takes a few minutes to kind of clear your head and be like, okay, where am I? What happened? And like reality started to set back in. And it was, uh, uh, you talk about a, uh, um, <laughs> a little bit of a comical, but both a, um, miserable situation to realize you were in. So when I woke up, I was laying flat on my back and it kind of like, okay, I'm hearing the gunfire. I know I'm really messed up. It's hard to think straight. Oh, that's right. You're in Iraq. You're in a firefight. Yeah. You're super messed up. Um, and you're bleeding out was kind of my first thought. But then I noticed something. Uh, I noticed red laser beams that were traveling right above me and machine guns, actually, the fifth round is what's called, uh, we call it tracers. Uh, it, uh, they put some phosphorus in the gunpowder so that when it shoots, it actually glows as it goes through the air. And uh, it looks like a laser beam. Uh, oftentimes you see these in a lot of movies and things like that. And yeah. that's what they really look like in combat too. And I realized immediately that's tracer fire, that's machine gun fire. So if you sit up, you're going to get shot. And I remember laying there thinking, this sucks. I can't move. I'm pinned down. Um, you think you lost your arm. At this I think point. I lost my arm. I thought my, so I th- I'm thinking you're going to bleed out. Yeah. You're going to bleed out quickly. And I knew from our training that our guys could not come get me. Um, We have trained that in a fierce firefight, if someone gets wounded, you cannot run out to get them. We've seen it over and over again, you know, the enemy sometimes and uh, will use it as a tactic. They will wound someone on purpose to try and lure other people out there to get them so that they can shoot them. Uh, So I knew I had to wait. I had to be patient and you know, just trust my guys to, to win that fight and, you know, let the battlefield develop is a phrase we sometimes use. And that was a super hard thing to, you know, cause stay, stay frozen. Cause I knew I'm like, you only got so much time man. the clock's ticking, you yeah. know, you're going to bleed out, but they have to win the fight in order to come get you. And, uh, and obviously, thankfully they did. I mean, the, the firefight, what we estimate from the time I got initially hit, uh, was probably 35 to 40 minutes until we finally. That's incredible. I, I heard that number. I heard you tell somebody that number and I thought, holy, God. I mean, that is a long, which seemed like three days. Fight. 
Yeah. I mean, 35 <laughs> to 40 minutes and heavy and close range. Close range. Right? We were only, uh, the machine gun that had me pinned down was only 45 feet away. So my, you know, so we were only 55 feet basically from where the tractor tire was or, or, you know, uh, 45 feet and yeah, 10 yards further was that tractor tire that our guys were hiding behind. So, um, so anyways, long story short, uh, my guys, uh, you know, my team leader, called in the closest fire mission in the entire Iraq war. We literally called fire directly in on our position, you know, in the movies, a lot of times, you know, you'll hear the phrase, you know, it's danger close, which is actually a real thing in the military. I mean, what it, what danger close means is we, we understand, um, you know, we have really smart people in the military, um, that basically engineers who figure out blast radius of different bombs and missiles and things that we use in aircraft, and they will calculate what is the danger close parameter. It's basically a circle. And this is the furthest distance we know that it pushes a blast wave and fragmentation. So as friendly forces, we don't want to be inside that danger close ring when we're calling in fire. And we were way within the danger close parameters. But you had no choice. We had no choice. Um, And uh, so we literally had to call fire right in on our position. And miraculously, none of us were hit. They took the enemy out. And And got me out of there. Uh, You know, my team leader went forward and grabbed me, saved my life, got a tourniquet on my arm and, uh, you know, flew the rotor. Thankfully, the medevac came in and they flew the rotors off, got me to uh, Baghdad and and saved my life. Um, Which started a a whole new journey. And really, when I, you know, I was talking earlier about life ambushes, it, it, it almost was like a there was a, the primary enemy ambush and then you had the secondary life ambush, which was, um, you know, waking up over a four day period from these surgeries that saved my life. And then to get into the start of the, uh, reconstruction part of being put back together from really devastating wounds. I mean, when I arrived at Bethesda, I was faced with surgeons who were saying we should, you know, we're going to, you know, we may need to amputate your arm. Uh, you know, my face is blown out. Um, you know, um, I had no use of my left hand. The nerves were damaged. Um, I obviously had no nose. I was trached. I'm wired shut. I had a stomach tube to feed me. And, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, it's like so many of us that have overcome big odds, you know, we have these unrealistic expectations often of, you know, how we're going to do something. And, uh, I was like, okay, so, you know, I remember writing to the doctor, I couldn't speak. I can only write. And I wrote to the doctor, how many months is it going to take to put me back together? Um, you know, I got things to do. (laughs) My sister's getting married in October, you know, I'm going to the wedding and she was just incredulous. She was like, what? She's like months. She's like, we're talking years to put you back together. Uh, and I think that was kind of the first time that I was like, Whoa. Um, and, and really a shock. Um, And that's hard because, you know, I coming full circle, if you look at the ambush itself and that overwhelming feeling and like this desire to hunker down, now I stepped into this second area and I wanted to do the same thing. I'm like, you're kidding me. You know, I mean, really, and just overwhelmed by the prospect of years to be put back together and doctors telling me, you know, we may have to cut off your arm, you know, because we don't think it's going to come back. Um, 
everyone in life will encounter moments like this. Um, and they're what I call life ambushes. They are these unexpected moments that will just utterly and crushingly devastate you and uh, leave those, you know, whether it's physical injury, whether it's mental injury, whether it's emotional, or oftentimes it's a combination of all three that come together. And uh, what's interesting about these moments is, you know, you have a choice. You have a choice to accept it and just wither and die on the spot, which we call that spot of any attack, of any ambush, the X. And in special operations, and the way my team and I survived that night was we got off the X. We relentlessly focused on the ability to win that fight and figure out a way to get off that X, to get out of the point of attack. And it was through uh, the overcome mindset, we are yeah. going to win. The training and preparation, you know, we, we had the firepower and the tactics. And thankfully, we were fortunate enough to have the technology, the Air Force AC-130 gunship up overhead, and then the balance in how we led and how, you know, my team took over to enable us to get off the X. But I realized in the hospital that it was the same way. I could lay there and feel sorry for myself and uh, or figure out how to drive forward. And then I started looking at other ambushes, you know, that I had been in in my life and other people. And now, like, you know, I look at it all the time. And you dissect people, I mean, them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that. I, I had heard you talk about that, that it, it takes, you know, that the whole point when you and your team went to ambush someone was to render them so overwhelmed that they shut down. And for us to think about whatever it is that anybody who's listening whatever they're engaged in, it doesn't matter their career, it doesn't matter their life situation, that idea that when you get overwhelmed and you shut down, that's, it, it sounds like from, from what I've heard you say before, it's like you, you need to take that step. Yeah. You need to take that, whatever that next step is and start to act and build on that win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to, and, and, and it's a little bit counter- intuitive because you're so overwhelmed, you're in so much pain, you're in so much shock, regardless of what happened. I mean, when I talk about a life ambush, you know, I've kind of scaled them based off the things that I've seen and people that I've worked with, whether it's wounded warriors, whether it's, or whether it's individuals that have just experienced trauma, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of different people. And at the lower level, it's like, this unexpected relationship breakup. I've been with this person for years and all of a sudden, I don't know, they have an affair and they dump me or, you know, um, that's a life ambush. I mean, that is, you know, emotionally and mentally painful um, to a divorce, to a business or personal failure, to, you know, bankruptcy, you know, I don't know, corporations, a hostile takeover that takes over your company, to grievous injury or accident, to you life-threatening illness to you or, or your loved ones. I mean, either one of those things are life ambushes, sexual trauma, and then, you know, the unexpected loss of a loved one or the uh, biggest impact I have definitely seen that crushes people is the unexpected loss of a child. And uh, these are all life ambushes. And so often in those initial moments, no different in that firefight, people, they're, they're overwhelmed by the pain and the grief and the, and they just, we have this natural tendency to just want to hunker down and just kind of pray it'll go away by itself. You know, maybe if I hunker down and just curl into a little ball, I'll avoid getting shot 
or the explosions won't touch me and then it'll just end and then I'll get up and go away. But life unfortunately does not work that way. Um, and life ambushes don't work that way either. Those things you're going through, they don't fix themselves by themselves, you know? Um, so what I began to look at is that the methodology that we utilize to get off the X and, and something we call an immediate action drill in any um, training that we did, we basically had these immediate action drills. So it was, we would train that if A happened, we would immediately do B. And if B happened, we would immediately do C. And we would train over and over again. Mentally, we would talk through these things. When we planned the mission, we would talk through these things, that these were our immediate action drills. And I tell people in life, you need to think about these things. Um, you know, obviously, you don't want to think about what happens if I get in a divorce or, you know, God forbid, what would happen if I lost a child. But you can mentally prepare yourself for these hard situations and how would I handle them, building an overcome mindset and building these things. So, you know, in my new book, Overcome, the methodology that we use in special operations, except I kind of drilled it down to a more relatable format, I call it the react methodology. So if you sustain a life ambush, you have to react and react as an acronym for R stands for recognize you. That is the very first fundamental thing. You have to recognize you are in a crisis. You are in an ambush, you know, hunkering down and pretending that it's not happening, uh, is not helping the situation. And as a matter of fact, may contribute to you withering and dying on the spot. Ambushes are like quicksand. The longer you sit on one, the more it will pull you down and the harder it is to get off it with time. And this applies in anything in life. Um, you know, whatever crisis you're going through, the more you try and deny it and ignore it, the usually the worse it gets while you're pretending it's not happening. And so many people in life, um, they tend to, they deny it. Uh, they, they tend to avoid it and they tend to push other people away from it more pain they're going through. And oftentimes they go down this road of self-medication to deal with it. Yeah. Um, e is evaluate. You've got to evaluate the, um, what you have in that moment. What are the assets? What are my teammates, friends, counselors, pastors, who is around me that can help me in this moment? Because make no mistake, you know, it's, it's rarely ever that, you know, you can get out of an ambush by yourself, a life ambush. Uh, make no mistake, the overcome mindset is you. You have to make the choice that you're going to get off the X. I mean, that's first and foremost. But once you make that decision, you got to look around and E is evaluate. What do I have at my disposal? Obviously, in that firefight, I had my teammates. We had the AC-130 gunship. We had a, uh, 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 you know, a um, reconnaissance uh, thing. Uh, drone that was giving us additional footage, things like that. Life's no different. Who do you have at your disposal? What do you have at your disposal? What assets? You know, is it your attorney? Who knows what it is? Um, A is you now have to assess. So you know what you, you've evaluated. Now you assess what are the options? You know what you have. So what are my options? And then what are the outcomes? If I take option A, what's my outcome? If I take option B, what's my outcome? And C, and, and you got to decide what is the best outcome. And one of the hardest things when you do this is oftentimes you may, you may, the situation may get worse before it gets better. Yeah. But if you don't make it worse before it gets better, then, you know, you're just stuck on the X. 
You know, like you have to move through this hard situation to get better. Life's no different. The third, the fourth one is C, uh, you've got to choose and communicate. So you have to choose one of those paths and, uh, and then communicate it. Cause almost never are you in an ambush all by yourself. Very rarely does that ever happen. Um, your, your significant other gets pulled onto the X with you. If you have kids, they get pulled onto the X with you. If you own a business and a business ambush, all your employees are on the X with you. So, uh, and the interesting thing about a life ambush, whether it's a combat ambush or an ambush, whether it's a combat ambush or it is a life ambush, when people get overwhelmed, they are looking for someone to lead. Um, oftentimes there becomes this, if nobody does anything, nobody steps up and leads. So, you know, once again, it goes back to you. You have to make that decision, especially if you're the central point of the ambush. So people are looking for leadership. So choose which way you're going to go and communicate it to the people around you. Cause now it, it accomplishes two things. One, uh, you've now placed accountability with other people. So now you've said, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Now people can go, okay, when are we doing it? What's going on here? Right. Let's go. Right. Right. Uh, and, and two, you know, uh, it, it gives a level of, uh, hope, you know, you're in this overwhelming situation and suddenly someone, the leader, you have said, this yeah. is what we're going to do. Yeah. And then the last one, take action. You have to execute. So many people, come up with plans and they talk and talk and talk and then they wait for the perfect moment. Okay, let's go. Not now, not now, not yeah. now. Nope, not yet. And they wait for this perfect moment. I'm going to give you a hint. It's never coming. Yeah. You'll never have a perfect moment in a life ambush. Well, let me let me take one of the things you talked about, choose, and you need to make a decision. And it's something that you did in a way that... Um, I mean, it, it actually got the the attention of the president. Um, it's something you did. I don't think it was calculated. I think it was a reaction. When you were, I don't know, were you in Walter Reed or Bethesda Naval Hospital? I, I was in Bethesda Naval Hospital, so, which later became Walter Reed, oh, which oh, is it's a little a, confusing. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so you did, walk us through that. You come back. That you were telling us before that you were saying to the doctor, when am I going to be put together? Tell us what happened there. You're laying in bed, people coming into the room. What, what was your experience there? Yeah. And this really is kind of the foundations or idea of this overcome mindset. I mean, the overcome mindset is nothing but a choice. It is a choice to choose you're going to drive forward. It's a choice to choose. Uh, you're going to choose positivity over negativity. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, and I go back to the beginning, enemy ambush, step into this life ambush. Here I was and, you know, I had a really unique journey. I had failed at a pretty high level as a leader at one point and almost got myself kicked out of the SEAL teams. And over about a two and a half year period, I had done the almost impossible. I had earned back the trust of my guys, uh, the guys in the SEAL teams, and they allowed me uh, to lead them again. And that's a really hard thing in the special operations community. I mean, they suffer no fools. I mean, and and they shouldn't. Their lives depend on leaders making good decisions. So I come full circle and suddenly I found myself grievously wounded in the hospital with, I got myself back on track. And here I am laying in this bed with Grievous injuries and, uh, you know, couldn't even get out of bed to walk in the beginning. No use of my hand and all this. So it was only a couple of days 
in. It was, I think it was four or five days I'd been in the hospital. I'm really kind of wrestling with what had happened and trying to be positive. But in my mind, I'm wondering, you know, where's this going to go? What's going to be the outcome? And why me? Why me after I just yeah. made it all the way back? Right? right. Does this happen to me? So I had some people come into the room and they started um, to have a conversation with themselves. I had drifted off a little bit with the meds, but I was still in a, uh, I was still in that subconscious state where you can hear people talking. Um, and they started out this conversation about with pity and it was all about what a shame. Um, and, and I will admit the wounded ward at Walter Reed and Bethesda Naval hospitals, uh, which now is the same is an overwhelming place. I mean, when you see young men and women that are blown to pieces, that are burned, that are missing limbs, that they're laying in these beds. I mean, I've gone on many occasions and it is just, it is a hard thing to witness. So I think they were kind of overwhelmed with the scenario and they just started talking about what a shame, what, 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 how sad we send these young men and women off to war and they come back all broken and battered and they're never going to be the same. You know, they're never going to be able to get back into society and be this productive member of society. And, um, just this very pity filled conversation. And then they left and I was kind of laying there and it was percolating in my brain. And, and I, it just, I'll be honest, it made me angry. Um, because here I was struggling with this, where do I go from here? And I had people who were basically making a choice for me, who basically were saying, you know, you're never going to recover. Exactly. Yeah. They were saying, you will be a victim. And in that moment, I was like, no, hell no. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be the victor. I'm going to choose positivity. And when my wife came back into the room, uh, a motion to her to give me my notepad so I could write. And literally there was no real thought that went into it. It was just kind of a stream of consciousness. There was no writing or rewriting. I wrote it in one shot and it was, uh, I wrote this sign to put on my door and it said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming, if you're coming into this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds that I received, I got in a job that I love doing it for people that I love defending the freedom of a country. I deeply love I will make a full recovery. What is full, that is the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And then I'm going to push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And we signed it, uh, you know, jokingly, the management, uh, my wife and I, and then I told her to put it on the door. And a couple of days later, a teammate took his trident off his uniform and he, he tacked it into the sign on the door, uh, which was on this bright orange red paper. And I told my wife, make sure nobody's allowed into my room until they read this, you know, uh, yeah. that will not happen again. And it literally, it was, it, I kind of wrote it as a statement to motivate myself. But what it ended up doing is motivating really to this day, it's been millions of people, uh, other wounded warriors, a New York firefighter, uh, who had lost both sons on nine 11 and had been a Marine, uh, came to the hospital and I met him just an amazing guy. We were lifelong friends until he passed away a couple years ago. But, um, he, uh, he took a picture of that sign and it went viral, went all over the place. Like you said, I got to invited to the White House to meet President Bush. He signed it. And then 
we had it framed uh, and we put all four service emblems inside of it. And then we put both the Iraq and the Afghanistan campaign medals and the purple heart at the top. And I dedicated, I gave it to the hospital because I didn't feel like it was mine. Yeah, I felt like it belonged to all the wounded warriors who had been through this war because it was the mindset of, I will overcome. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. You never know the impact of making that choice, you know, choosing to go down the road of being a victim and staying on the X and feeling sorry for yourself and pulling everybody on the X with you or saying, I'm going to be a victor and I am relentlessly, I'm going to get off this X. I'm going to overcome it and keep driving forward. I don't know what the future looks like and this may suck. But no matter what, I'm just going to drive forward. And that was the mindset. And now it's really cool. I mean, people with cancer have written me and said, I put your sign on uh, my door. I just had a guy this week who wrote me on Instagram in a heartbreaking story. His wife and son were in a horrific accident. And he sent me a picture of his son who is laid a brain trauma, uh, multiple body injuries. And he sent me a son and he asked me, can I post your sign on my son's door? And I was like, yeah, yeah please. Um, well, that's what I think. It's like, it, there, there are so many levels of this story that inspire me, excite me in, in the big way you're talking about the white house, millions of people. But then I'm even thinking of everybody that's listening, everybody who comes across you and your message to just on a very simple level, you're just drawing a line in the sand, whoever you are just saying like, Hey, I don't want people that are going to bitch around me. Right. This is how we're going to operate. And, and making that simple choice, it's, it, it, it it may not have the effect that your sign had, you know, this is a, a particular one that, that, is, you know, on a massive scale, but think about the effect that someone making that choice just, just on their own family, whoever's under their roof, you know, the difference between a mom or a dad who's thinking in that way versus, oh man, I'm overwhelmed. That's nothing's going to happen. I, I'm never going to get there. You know, it's, it's, it's very inspiring and, and coming from having built up after the fall, which I'd, I'd love to, if you if you wouldn't mind going back to that story of of what happened and how old you were when you uh, had what you described and you were with my friend, I don't know if we're allowed to mention his name, but I can say first name, Josh. And you said he was with you when this happened. W- what was that and how many years prior to 2007? Uh, it was only two and a half years prior. But here's what's amazing about that moment. Uh, and, and we'll go back to that moment. So basically, and I see this often in young men, and I felt guilty to it. Young men, and maybe there's a group of women out there possibly, but I see it more in young men. And I see it a lot in individuals who accelerate at a very young age and, and do very well at a very young age. You know, two things start to reach up and choke you out, and it is ego and arrogance. And they will de- derail your career. I've seen professional score- sports guys where it's happened because it happens a lot for them. Here they are, they're, you know, high school stars, college stars, and suddenly now they're on the biggest stage on the planet, you know, playing in whatever, NBA, yeah. my industry, baseball, actors, NFL actors. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
ego and arrogance started to play into, uh, I had done, I accelerated very well. I accelerated as a young SEAL and had done very well. And I got recommended for a commission as a young SEAL officer, went to school, graduated number one in my class out of a 300 plus man, uh, the largest ROTC consortium on the East Coast out of Old Dominion University and came back to the SEAL team thinking I was God's gift to leadership. And, you know, I'm just going to crush this. You know, I'm going to be the next, you know, who knows, Patton. And uh, except several things had happened. 9-11 had happened while I was at school and the SEAL teams had a major rewrite in all our tactics because we quickly realized that, you know, the old Vietnam era tactics, the last time we'd been in sustained combat, did not work in this war. Uh, so we had to change everything. So here I was, I come back, you know, thinking I'm God's gift and, uh, and none of the things that I had learned were the same. You know, here I was thinking I'm experienced, I'm going to step in. And instead of humbling myself and being like, hey, man, I don't know how to do this. Hey, young guy, you know, can you teach me? You're really good at this. I didn't. Um, I let ego and arrogance just get in the way. So I really started stumbling. And instead of slowing down and saying, I got to fix this, I just stumbled, which was eroding my credibility. I was on the X. And what do people do when they're on the X? Denial, Denial, avoidance, yeah. and self-medication. I did all three. Push guys away, uh, uh, was drinking like a fish, uh, and all of that was only further eroding my credibility as a leader. Um, we deployed to Afghanistan in 2005. Uh, our mutual friend Josh was with us. And uh, on a very hard deployment, it was the Operation Red Wings deployment. So we were part of that. Uh, my platoon was the sister platoon to the platoon that was in the helicopter that got shot down. So those of you that know the movie Lone Survivor, um, you know, Marcus obviously was the only survivor. But the individuals who came in on the helicopter at the end of the movie, they were members of my team. Eric Banna played my my troop commander, uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen, who was my boss. Um, and obviously they were all killed when that helicopter got shot down. And then fast forward, you know, that was June 28th of 2005. Fast forward to September 23rd, 2005. We were on a mission to sweep through a valley in uh, southern Afghanistan, a really vol- volatile area that was controlled by the Taliban. Um, got into some firefights. Uh, I was not in one. Our guys were down in one. Me and Josh and some other guys were in an overwatch position, a higher elevation position. We were nearing the end of the day. We were wrapping things up. And uh, uh, I had sent, actually, I had sent Josh and a couple of the other guys back. And I kept myself and one machine gunner up front because we were the only communication relay between the guys that were on the ground that were wrapping Uh, some things up. And then they got into a big firefight when this happened. Um, I made the decision to move myself and my machine gunner down into the valley to try and support them. And a lot of people hear this and they're like, that's so heroic. But you don't understand uh, my motivations to do it were driven more by, hey, here's a shortcut to look like a great leader than by thinking through the repercussions of my actions. And there are a lot of tactical you know, anybody that's listening to this that has served in the military and understands tactics, you know, there were things that I did that really 
were not good decisions. And they really jeopardized a lot of things with what we were doing. We're fortunate enough, the bad things that could have happened didn't happen. I mean, the only thing that really was, um, nobody was killed, nobody was injured, but uh, what was killed and injured was my the last of my professional reputation. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we got up to, uh, you know, I was down on the valley floor, task unit commander managed to get a hold of me, who this is after Eric had been killed, our executive officer stepped in and filled Eric's position at this point. And he basically screamed at me in the radio, get, get your ass out of the valley, moved up, climbed out in this, you know, 2000 foot sheer cliffs. And, um, and I realized immediately that all the guys were giving me a cold shoulder. Um, and I began to hear murmurs of, you know, Rambo red, um, which once again, you know, you, you know, pipe hitting guys that love the military, but you never served in it. Uh, you know, Rambo is a great movie, but the military does not operate that way. You are part of a team and, and it is a team structure. It is that balance that makes things effective, not one guy. So, um, but you know, once again, uh, denial, arrogance, ego, uh, I, I fought against it. You know, the task unit commander came up to me and just ripped me to pieces. And yeah. what were you thinking? And instead of humbling myself and going, you know what, you were right. That was a bad decision. I fought back. I fought back and said, you know what, man, I did the right thing. I ran at the sound of the guns. I went to support our brothers in arms. Did you and- know it in the moment? Did you know you were fighting a, a losing battle or did you believe at the time that what you no, did was No, right? I absolutely believed that I was right. Uh, I, Definitely. And I fought hard because I believe so fervently I was right. And I definitely had, I had, because of the bad situation, the bad decisions I had made before and alienating myself and the drinking and all that, it had already put a lot of guys against me who said, this guy's not good. Well, then suddenly I make this decision. It was like the perfect storm. So the perfect storm occurred and I was called to a uh, you know, basically I mean, almost a little bit like a performance review board, if you will. Um, and had to go before the commanding officer and the senior enlisted members of our team and other officers. And basically my tactical and operational abilities were called into question. And even then at that moment, I had several guys who said, uh, take his trident, which the trident is the seal emblem and is everything, yeah. you know, takes a minute, you know, it takes a minimum of almost, you know, probably three to four years of training, you know, probably before the military and then two years of training in the military just to earn this emblem. Uh, so to have guys in your own community say, take his trident, uh, was probably the biggest blow I've ever sustained. Um, I actually, I went back to my room after I walked out of that meeting and was told, Hey, tomorrow morning, we'll tell you what your fate is. Um, I went back to my room and, uh, I, you know, still had weapons, you know, and pulled my pistol out and put it in my mouth and was getting ready to blow my head off. And, um, you know, thankfully, uh, I had a picture of my wife and kids on the desk uh, across from me. And uh, I saw that as I was sitting there with my freaking gun in my mouth and thought, what are you doing? Um so I put my gun away. I went and sought help for the first time. And I'd love to say that, um, that I, uh, woke up and, you know, I didn't, 
uh, I stayed on the X for a while. I still felt like the victim. I tried to convince myself, you know, you're being thrown under the bus. You did the right thing. But it literally took me about five months. One what of was the, it that turned you? Did any particular yeah, moment? There were, there were two key things. It, well, it was a series. It was a sequence of time, but there were two key things. One, the first thing was uh, I hadn't hit rock bottom yet. So they, uh, one of my, there were several things that occurred the next morning when I went back and was told what was going to happen. I was told, uh, any rewards I was supposed to get from that deployment were rescinded. Um, I was told that, um, um, I was told that I would receive a unofficial letter of reprimand. So meaning it wouldn't go in my official service record because that if that had happened, it would have been the end of my career. But they would have this unofficial letter. The commanding officer would hold it. And if it, if I would go back and do another platoon as a leader, and as long as I performed in an exemplary manner, then that letter would be shredded. If I did not, that letter would go into my official record and it would be the end of my career. Uh, and then I was told you're, you're going to go take an amazing vacation to, uh, us army ranger school. <laughs> oh, that's right. So, uh, they sent me to ranger school and still bitter, still angry, still feeling like the victim, still sitting on the X. And, uh, I failed the land navigation course the third day of ranger school in the very first week. And I failed it because arrogance and ego, uh, I had taught land navigation. I had been appointment at one point. I'd been rear security. I was a very good navigator and, uh, I procrastinated on the course and just kicked around and was pissed off and waited for the sun to come up. Uh, in order to go find my points, we started at like, I don't know, 3am in the morning. So I wasted all this time when I should have been navigating, figuring I was so good. I could knock out this entire very long ranger school navigation course. in the few hours I had left when the sun rose, I didn't, I didn't finish it. I failed it. And, uh, then ranger instructors gave me a lot of grief and I allowed, all this pent up rage and frustration and denial and everything that had happened just boiled and exploded. And I basically on that told the ranger instructors, you know, you could have this course. I quit, never quitting anything in my entire life. Um, the second the words came out of my mouth, I was like, what the hell are you thinking? But I couldn't take it back. Yeah. You know, I couldn't say, Hey, I messed up. Um, so they said, okay, Roger that. You're going to go see the Ranger Colonel. Next day, I had to go stand before the Ranger Colonel. Fate, faith. Um, you know, I, I am a man of faith. I think this is a God moment, whatever you believe. The Ranger Colonel happened to be friends with probably one of the greatest leaders in the SEAL teams, a guy that had mentored me, a guy that had gotten me commissioned. Not only was he friends with him, he dialed him up at his desk and he happened to be on the other side and said, hey, Vince, I got one of your guys here. I think you should talk to him. If it had been anybody else, I would have been like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to tell any other SEAL what I've done. You know, I was ashamed. And, but I couldn't say no to him. I had that much respect. And uh, this was the defining moment because when I talked to him on the phone, I basically gave him the whole sob story. I'm a victim. I got thrown under the bus. You know, I did what was right. And he was one of the greatest leaders I've ever met. He had the ability to very succinctly get to 
the bottom of any problem and, and present it in a light that made sense to you for you to go, oh yeah, you're right. Motivate and inspire you to move off the X. And, and he did that with me. And one of the lies that I told him in that moment was, I'll never be able to go back to the SEAL teams. No one will ever follow me again. I've made too many mistakes. I cannot recover. And he gave me the greatest leadership advice I've ever been given. He said, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. That's leadership. He's like, so go kick this course in the ass and come back to the SEAL teams, hold your head high and give them a reason to follow you. And, uh, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and hung up the phone and looked at the Ranger Colonel and said, will you put me back in your class? And he said, no, uh, you're going to go sit in Ranger school jail for a month while you wait for the next class to class up during Ranger school jail. What I got to do every day is walk around Fort Benning and pick up trash. So here I was, a 13-year Navy veteran, had been a SEAL for 11 years. I was a combat veteran walking around Fort Benning, picking up trash with a trash bag and a little pointy stick. And I still was bitter. And finally, like, I really started to, while walking around the base, picking up trash, I finally started to look inward and really self-analyze who I was and realize you are not as great as you think you are, dude. And you are definitely not the great leader. You have not been effectively leading. You have not been setting the example. You basically have been saying, look at me, I'm a leader, but you haven't been acting it. And really you want to paint yourself the victim, but you put yourself in that situation. And I think that was the, that was really the kind of the breakthrough moment. Like, Hey dude, I got news for you. It's, <laughs> it's all, all your, your fault. fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was like the punch in the face. Yeah. Uh, and, and that combined with Vince Peterson's advice of, you know, they will follow you if you give them a reason to. And I just, I said, okay, it's time for a reset, man. So, and that, Here's an interesting thing. So when I talk to people about these hard moments in your life, the great news about it is the overcome mindset is forged in those moments. And if you are willing to endure them, they will prepare you for future things. They will prepare you to endure bigger life ambushes that are coming. I hate to tell you. Um, because that's exactly what happened. That two and a half year period to go back to the SEAL, to go through Ranger School and go back to the SEAL teams. And and there were guys who definitely did not want to serve with me when I got back. As a matter of fact, there are guys still out there right now that probably hate my guts because I made those mistakes. And there's no amount of great things I will do. They'll never forgive me for that. It's just some people are that way. But guess what? Life's that way too. You're always going to have people that don't like you. You're always going to have people that hate you for whatever reason. So it Ignore them and focus on you. Focus on doing it right. Focus on looking in the mirror at the end of the day and saying, did I do everything I can do to be a good dad, to be a good police officer, to be a good actor, to be a good leader of a company, to be a good Navy SEAL? If you can say yes to that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And that's what I focused on day by day, focusing on myself, on how I led myself and to be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and, and really also very much humbling myself, you know, letting go of the ego, letting go of the arrogance, recognizing I definitely didn't know everything and, and seeking out help from the guys. That walk, though, was the hardest journey I have ever, yeah. ever walked. So when I got in the enemy ambush, I was ready. Yeah. I, I love hearing this because, uh, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm 
preaching this stuff to my wife all the time. She's like, oh God, I'm like, it sounds so much better coming from you. <laughs> so she'll, <laughs> she'll listen to this and, ah, you, and know, you know, the story's a little it's more. A, it's a, it's, but, but it's true. It's a, all these things they're, they're preparing you. They're preparing you for the next thing down the line. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I want to let you go, be respectful of your time. Um, I, I have uh, just a couple of things. I don't want, I mean, this is, I was going to get into the, you said you're a man of faith. I wanted to hear about that. I don't know if that would open up a can of worms that we can't close before uh, I get you off to dinner. Uh, no, I, I mean, I'll, uh, I mean, if you want me to touch just, on it. Just, just because I, I had heard the story of when you were in that firefight and you happened to put on the side armor mm-hmm. that day. And you never did before because you liked the flexibility. Mm-hmm. You happened to put it on. You happened to get hit in the side yep. and said, had you not had them. I'd probably be dead. And, and that was just something of a, a voice in your head telling you to put them on today? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, special operations, we have a little bit of latitude and the gear we carry. There are certain things you have to carry. And then there are certain things that, you know, you get to make the choice if you want to carry it. A lot of times, you know, side plates are additional. You had to wear your front plate and your rear plate. And obviously your helmet, but uh, some of that other stuff, you know, guys would choose not to, to be lighter, to move faster, depending on the mission, um, you know, depending on the altitude you were operating, all those different things. So that night, and I normally didn't wear them when we did assaults, but that night when I was preparing for that mission, some little voice was like, wear your side plate. And that's a, you think that saved your life? I, I took around, I mean, I took a lot of rounds, but I took a round right off that side plate. And it was actually when I was laying on the ground. Uh, so that round would have hit me like straight through here. So I imagine, I mean, at the angle it hit me, it would have gone through and blown out my kidney. It might've even hit my spine. Yeah. Uh, it, it would have been a pretty devastating wound. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that happened is as, as I was laying there bleeding out, there was a period of time where, um, I knew I was dying. Um, you know, Whatever that time, however long it took for my guys to win the firefight and get me, um, I lost a lot of blood um, and I started shutting down. I mean, if you study trauma and how the body functions, in some ways, it's kind of like a machine. Uh, I mean, it really is probably the most advanced, amazing machine that's ever been made. And it, uh, it operates off certain pressures. And, you know, when you spring a leak, you know, by gunfire explosions or whatever accidents happen, uh, it, it goes into shutdown mode. And I knew, I knew the signs, I knew the symptoms and I'm like, you're going into shock. You're, this is happening. That's happening. And finally I was like, you're dying. And, uh, I've reached a point where I could no longer move. And I, um, I, it got harder and harder to breathe. It got harder and harder to think. And I just, I, I called out to God and I said, please give me the strength to go home and to see my wife and kids again. And it, uh, I suddenly was filled with this energy. Um, and when, uh, I don't know how long it was from the time that occurred to the time they finally won the firefight and the helicopter came in and landed and it landed about 75 yards away from me. But I went from not being able to move a muscle to getting up and walking under my own power and getting on the helicopter. Um, I cannot explain that. It is, I, I attribute it to, um, God. Um, so I, I believe I am a man of faith. I am definitely not a perfect Christian. I'll tell you that right now, but I personally believe there is a higher power and I am fortunate enough. I've 
oftentimes I even, I've preached in churches whenever I talk about where are all the miracles and the reality is they happen all around us. Just in this day and age, we choose to ignore them or play them off as something else. So I'm a walking miracle. Um, and I will never take this second chance for granted. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, I will, I will put links to everything that is all of your stuff in the show notes. Uh, if you want to just explain, I know we're, we're wrapping it up, but wounded where, uh, what that's all about just to, so people have an idea. I'd like for people that hear your story that are moved by your story, if they want to get involved and, and support. And I just think what it stands for is... Uh, so Wounded Wear was a company that we launched in 2007 to help Wounded Warriors. I will say that we phased it down, although we may be bringing it back. The demand for it is big. So I'll tell you, if you give me an opportunity to speak on where I'd love people to support, the two biggest problems, and it's one of the reasons why I phased our organization down, because what we were not helping on the scale that I felt like we needed was the PTSD and mental health problem that's occurring 22 veterans a day killing themselves and uh, the brain research problem because we're having guys, guys are killing themselves because of traumatic brain injuries. We know it is going hand in hand as we're doing more research. We're seeing guys with similar to the NFL. They have uh, CTE, concussive traumatic encephalitis, except it's blast related. So we're seeing this spike in especially special operations guys and even frontline combat troops who are killing themselves. And then afterwards they autopsy them and they're like, oh yeah, they've got CTE. Their brain's riddled with it. Research is what we need. So please, if you are a combat veteran that's out there, or if you're an, or if you are someone who's looking to support combat veterans, um, Headstrong Project is my go-to right now. I am supporting them. So their website is getheadstrong.org and they are providing mental health services immediate mental health services to combat veterans. If they say, I need help right now, the VA, unfortunately, is backlogged. It's taking, you know, I mean, I've heard horror stories of a month. I mean, I'd like to think that most of them are seeing them sooner, but uh, Get Headstrong is is having them, if they're in a major city and they're branching out all across the United States, they have psychologists and psychiatrists who basically sign up and they're on a list. And if a combat veteran reaches out and says, I need help right now, they will be seen within 48 hours. Wow. So great group. Another group is concussion, the Concussion Legacy Foundation and is same group that's working with the NFL on CTE. They now have a program focused on, um, on veterans. We need more uh, we, we need more research. So this is going to sound a little crazy, but, uh, I need your brain. Yeah. Uh, if you're a combat veteran, I need you to pledge your brain to the concussion legacy foundation. They have a program called project enlist. I pledge my brain. You don't need it when you're dead. I hate to tell you, your guys are like, I'm not giving up my brain. You don't need it. And what a cool way to give back to your fellow veterans because blasts and combat does some hard things on our brains and doctors and scientists don't understand it. But unless they have the brains to look at it, we'll never understand it. Yeah. So those are my passions right now. And what about it on, on a personal level, anybody listening in terms of, you know, seeing someone, you know, you, you dealt with this when you came back and when you were in that hospital, people looking at you in, in, in a way that not knowing how to talk to you, maybe not bringing it up. Wh- what could people that are listening, how could they be better at honoring our soldiers who are, really providing our freedom. 
Is there, I mean, it's a big question. So I mean, you know, I have some people that feel like, oh, it's so trite to say thank you for your service. I don't feel that way. I'm always honored when somebody says it. I try and say it every time I see a guy wearing a Vietnam veteran hat or a World War II hat, I try and say thanks. I'll tell you what, our Vietnam veterans, I mean, you talk about a nation that, that just, just, did such a terrible disservice to those guys. Those guys did their job. They went over there and served, and then this country turned their back on them. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to tell a Vietnam vet, thank you for what you did, be prepared to be met with tears because I've met so many of those guys that have been told they were never thanked. So it means something to me, but I think the biggest thing you can do, I said, I mean, I love someone that says, you know what? Hey, thank you for your service. I value my freedoms every day. Yeah. I teach my kids, you know, how great it is to li live in this country and to have freedom and to be able to do anything they want to do as long as they're willing to put in the work and the sacrifice. And, and there's no guarantee it's going to happen. There's no guarantee. You, this life owes you nothing. You are entitled to nothing. But one of the greatest things about this country is you have the freedom and you have the opportunity to go after it. And hopefully with hard work and grinding and, you know, meeting the right people and a little luck, you will find that success. But there's so many places in the world, you don't ever have that chance. Yeah. Well, Jason Redmond, thank you for your service. Thank you for sitting down with me on 10,000 No's. Uh, it's, it's been great to meet you. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, Matt, my honor. I love, I love it, man. You teach the overcome mindset. 10,000 No's, but keep going. <laughs> Get off the X. Get off the X. All right. As always, hard to break this down to top three takeaways, but here's my attempt. One, everyone has setbacks and life ambushes. Everyone. Just because someone's a Navy SEAL or a movie star or a CEO of a large company flying around in a jet, don't think they've escaped it. Likely, actually, they've overcome it in a way that put them in what you see now as an enviable position. Two, get off the X. I love that. Don't sit around thinking it's going to get better. Do something about it. Help yourself. As one of my past guests, Mark Duplass, said, quoting Tony Robbins, the cavalry isn't coming. So whether you're trying to make your mark in Hollywood or breathe your next breath on a battlefield in Afghanistan, get off the X. Move. Shake. Do whatever it takes to get yourself out of harm's way. Number three, there is always room for redemption and a comeback story. When Jay admitted that he considered taking his own life after disgracing himself among the SEAL community, he couldn't quite see it yet. But there it was for the taking. Did it take a humbling of his ego? Yes. Did it take being the object of ridicule? Yes. Did it take massive amounts of training and learning? Yes. But it was possible. And because he put in the work, he's the leader he is today. And redemption is possible for you too but you need to sear it into your brain that it's possible and then live for that possibility every day. And slowly but surely, you'll make progress, even if it's in a jagged line. So stick with it. That is it for today. My deepest gratitude for Jay Redman for sitting down with me in San Diego and deep gratitude for my friend and former guest, Pedros Koulian, for connecting us unsolicited. If you want to learn more about Jay, go check out the links in the show notes. Please share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it and post it to your social media if you think it can make a difference in their lives. If you can take a few minutes to leave an iTunes review, I would personally appreciate that. And subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen. 
That way you won't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you like today's conversation with Jay, check the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Power entrepreneur and best-selling author, Bedros Koulian, NFL veteran fullback, Heath Evans, or because of the link of getting off the X in Hollywood, writer, producer, actor, director, Mark Duplass. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which other episodes might speak to you. Join us every Friday for these conversations and the intermittent shorter solo riffs on themes of this show. Resilience, reframing, perseverance, winning mindset, basically how to overcome 10,000 no's in whatever form they come to you. For announcements and promo videos of who's next, you can follow me on social media. Those handles are at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And you can email us at info at 10,000knows.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week. <laughs>